Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. This is a very special edition. In fact, one of our first special editions. I'm not sure what we're calling it, but um, let's call it an appendix. Uh, I'm Tom Butler, as usual, joined by Brendan and Tom. Hello. And by a very special guest, Mr. Mark O'Connell. Hello, guys. Hello. Welcome. How are you doing? Good, thank you. We're very very well. Very good. Good, good. So uh, this special, we are revisiting an episode that we covered earlier in the run, and it's uh, A View to a Kill. And Mark, we wanted to invite you on um, because we know you're a big fan of that film. But why don't you just give us a quick introduction to yourself, and then we can dive into A View to a Kill. Absolutely. We will dance into that fire. Um, well, my name's Mark O'Connell, writer, author, Bond fan. I wrote Catching Bullets, uh, memoirs of Bond fan. I do a lot of Bond commentary for all sorts of places like the very beautiful Yahoo movies. Um, I've done other stuff as well. I sort of call myself a, a pop culture pundit or pirate, actually, which is the, uh, the news that people love to try and say live on air. But um, that's who I am. The pop pundit pirate. I like that. Yes. Pop culture pirate. Yeah. Pop, sorry, pop pundit, yeah. pop, pop culture pundit pirate. Very Usually good. the news the news team say I am not saying that, and I say I dare you, and then they always do. And it works out. <laughs> and you've got quite an interesting connection to the Bond world itself, Mark. It's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Well, I'm a Bond fan, like so many of us uh, beautiful people are. But my grandfather, uh, for many many decades, uh, was sort of Cubby Broccoli's driver and chauffeur and babysitter house sitter child minder and he was with cubby before bond so he was sort of started with him late 50s and then carried on with cubby right up to the late 80s actually wow. my, uh, my grandfather tried to retire in the 70s and cubby who was a year or two older than jimmy said something i've got to t- t- uh, tone this down a bit because it was a bit fruity broccoli language but he said if, if I can make the bloody movie, the least you can do is drive the bloody car. And it was, it was all said in love. So my grandfather stayed on for perhaps 10 years beyond his retirement. Um, so, yeah, so Bond was always in my life, in my family before I was. I, I remember as a kid hearing sort of names like Broccoli and Barbara and Brosnan and Roger, all these sort of names. Uh, and then it was, um, it was Octopus, it was my first Bond film, but A View to Kill was the, 
it is my favourite Bond film for lots and lots of reasons. I'm sure we'll, we'll cover some of them. Um, but I think, as Mark Gatiss said to me once, uh, once you become a Bond fan, it's the next one that hasn't come out yet. That is the one that often is your favourite because it's the first one that you anticipate and follow and watch. Mm. And I kind of, I'm kind of there with a view to kill on that. That's really interesting. I mean, that our whole idea of an- anticipating it. I think we were all sort of. Mm of that for the for the Brosnan era and that didn't work out as well for no. us um, <laughs> but um, I mean you've listened to the the view to a kill episode that we did I mean we, we went really really deep on it and um, we have to I have to say we I mean obviously we all love Roger Moore and uh, his era but we re- I think it's fair to say we struggled with this one is that is that fair Brendan yeah yeah, yeah I think it was hard, hard work yeah there's so much horse stuff Oh, here we go. The whole stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we really struggled it, Mark. What what hmm. are we missing? What Sell it to uh, us. You need to be nine years old in 1985. That's a really good start. <laughs> yeah. um, and, so, and watching Live Aid so that Duran Duran will do a really bad version. I don't know if you, ever, if you see it or you need to go and look at it afterwards. Um, when Band Aid happened, um, Duran Duran were in the Philadelphia American side of it. And... They always say that Freddie Mercury's note, when he's sing, you know, when he's doing his uh, Radio Gaga, he he gave the note that started Band Aid or Live Aid, and there, there's a few wags that say that Simon Le Bon gave the notes that ended it because he just <laughs> he, he couldn't hit one of the high notes on a beautiful kill. You need to find it. It's like oh no. Um, so yeah, being nine years old helps. Um, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. I really don't. Uh, but I I don't know what's not to like about a beautiful kill. Um, no, I. I think, for me personally, it underlines what happens with a lot of uh, big franchise films, and particularly with Bond, because there's been like sort of 4,200 Bond films now. And every Bond film is someone's entry point. It's the moment they got into the films. Uh, and that does suddenly become wrapped up with nostalgia and, um, and sentiment. Um, but why do I like A View to Kill? Uh, I, I mean, you, you can all just go home and I'll just sit here for seven <laughs> hours um, sort of going through minute by minute I, I i accept it's got flaws of course it has every film has every bond film has um i i, I like it first and foremost for the my grandfather connection so the uh, cub one which is the um which is cubby's silver cloud rolls royce that's very much in the film driven by patrick whitney but also patrick whitney is wearing the same uniform my grandfather used to sometimes wear so that was kind that's kind of nice to see and a little touch i don't know if anyone's clicked on this um but there's almost a chauffeur in every Bond film. And that's not some reference to my grandfather or any of Pabby's drivers. But even in Skyfall, I, I could be wrong, and I need to ask the right people this, but when Daniel Craig is waiting at, well, I call it Ascot Airport. It was filmed, it was Shanghai Airport, but filmed at Ascot. And he's pretending to be a chauffeur. I'll put money that that's my grandfather's hat that he's wearing, probably from the, uh, the dusty chauffeur wardrobe. So, I, so I've got that, that sort of... The first connection I have with it, and and I nearly so very very nearly had um, the silver Rolls Royce for our wedding, and the current owner of it did try and look into getting it for us, but um, uh, it turned out it would be quite dicey and expensive to pull it out of its Bond in Motion exhibition home at the time. Um, pull it out of the quarry that it was uh, sunk in. <laughs> well, yeah, we, actually, we got married not far from Slough, so we could have maybe just you know borrowed it. Then, <laughs> chucked it back in the the uh, lake um i i love the score i lo- obviously love john barry i i for such a slightly derided film it's one of john barry's best pieces of 
scoring with that autumnal flute and string section for wine with Stacy and quiche with Stacy and cats with Stacy and all of that. Uh, so I love it for that. I also just love the eighties excess of it. Um, there's a, there's a, with Bond, you can see a particular with the Daniel Craig films, they Bond always operates five minutes in the future with his eye 10 minutes in the past, I often think. And A View to a Kill is like the 80s film in the way that you could say Live and Let Die or Spy Who Loved Me is the 70s Bond film. And, you know, GoldenEye is the 90s one. I, I think A View to a Kill is the 80s with its yuppie excess and its white airships um, and that sense of America as well. America was quite key to the 80s. We were obsessed by everything American in the 80s. So that that also feeds into it. I never look at Roger Moore, sort of 57, 58, being that old. Yes, when he's compared, you know, he's doing a lot of work with Tanya Roberts, you can see a bit of age gap. But but by that point in the films, they kind of shifted Bond into being like all this almost godfather to uh, three women in a row that have daddy issues. You know, Melina Havelock, Octopussy and um, Stacey Sutton. Yes, he may slightly step over the Godfather boundaries with most of them in the shower scene, but I never had a problem with Roger's age when I was nine years old. And, you know, Harrison Ford's contemplating Indiana Jones 5, aged 78, 79. I, I, I think Roger can be forgiven for um, for letting his stunt double go to Paris and San Francisco. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I think one of the things that we discussed at the time was, you're right, it's, it has, it has a, a foot in the, in the past, but also a foot in the future. It's try, it is trying to do something, mm. it's trying to move things forward, particularly with the casting and, 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 the, and the song. Mm. And actually the cast around Bond, we all decided, I think, was, is a particular highlight. I think yeah. Christopher Walken yeah. and Grace Jones is inspired casting. Patrick McNee mm-hmm. just, you know, anything with Patrick McNee is instantly improved, right? Um, yes. You know, yeah, argument there was, there was, that, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, just I think there's an argument to say almost it's probably one of the best cast Bond films, full stop. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I mean, the whole idea of putting Grace Jones in it was quite a bold manoeuvre. Cubby Broccoli at the time and John Glenn and the whole team were very aware of just trying to get perhaps get this film a little get a bit more noticed in different channels in different ways and you know we had octopussy which again is a very almost classical bond film it's hot air balloons it's steam trains it's old colonial india it's circuses uh yes there's gadgets and modernness in it but it it feel it, it could almost be set in a different era and then a view to a kill comes and it's it's white goods. It's microchips. It's, uh, it's as I say, it's airships in America. Uh, I think that, that they were trying. I wouldn't say they wanted to use it up by any stretch, but I think I remember as a kid, and again I was nine years old. But I remember the. I remember right. I was seven when Octopussy came out, and nine when A Beautiful Kill came out. But I remember it was a very more, a lot more of a contemporary vibe surrounding A Beautiful Kill. You know, Duran, don't knock the Duran Duran thing. Not that it is, but that. That's really important. That song was seriously everywhere in the summer of 85. And Duran Duran, Duran Duran were bigger than Bond as well at the time. If you ever see any footage of the world premiere, it's everyone screaming for Simon Le Bon, not, not Roger Le Bond. Yeah, that's something we talked about, the, the, the premiere, which um, mm. sounds like quite a, quite a lavish, lavish affair. And actually, what you're talking about, Roger as well being 57, again, was something that we, we decided that, well, actually... I don't know how what, what what the other two thought, but 
I never had an issue with him being too old. He seems no. still like, you know, he's still got the sparkle in his eye. And for me, it's brilliant that all the Ascot stuff, when you've got, uh, you know, you, it's the, literally the last hurrah of money of Lois Maxwell, uh, Robert, well, Robert Brown comes back. But it, it feels like it's, I sort of call them the Whitehall Avengers in the Daniel Craig era. And this is their first sort of incarnation. And I, I like that they're not trying to make it too youthful, that there's a sentiment about getting older and all of that in this caper you know about microchips it's none of it fits but for me a lot of it works um and also the locations as well it's after view to a kill there was a quite a few bond films where for various reasons the locations were kind of hidden that you had um uh you know like mexico city was doubling up as this fictional isthmus city i can never say that with the teeth um and view to a kill really was perhaps the last big bond film that didn't care that it had the Eiffel Tower and the Golden Gate Bridge in, but a Bond film would not be so obvious with that now. Uh, and also, 35 years later, you know, San Francisco is perhaps less less glamorous than it used to be. Paris is less glamorous than it used to be because global travel is or was more of a thing. Taking it back to uh, Lois Maxwell, saying it's mm. her final film, we like from reading into it. I don't know what insight you have, but. Was it just, was it a sense that it was an amicable exit for her at this point? Because you get a sense that maybe she felt she could carry on, but they they just decided not to bring her back for the next one. Um, it, it's I so I remember at the time Lois Maxwell was was giving interviews and she said I have this idea and yeah maybe she was trying to you know uh, preserve her role and also a lot of these you know whether it was Desmond Llewellyn or Robert Brown or Bernard Lee or Lois Maxwell. They often only did like a day or two. I think it, I remember there was a story that Roger Moore sometimes, I think it was Roger Moore, I could be getting this wrong, would sometimes fluff his lines and go over so that those actors would get to a, a day or two more <laughs> because they were contracted for as long as they were there. So that was that was Roger sort of eking it out and it, uh, with the gang. But I remember um, Lois Maxwell um, saying that she has this vision where Bond goes into... Uh, Money Penny's uh, Annex office, and he's um, the usual scene. But Money Penny's not there, or she's a lot younger, which kind of ha- happened in Octopussy. And then Bond pushes through the, the double leather doors, and a chair swings round, and it's it's Lois Maxwell, Money Penny, now playing M. And I remember at the time she said it would be amazing, or if it was someone like Judy Dench. And I remember thinking, wow, okay. And then ten years later, that actually happened for real. I think more because Stella Rivington yeah. um, was was mm-hmm. um, the head of MI6 at the time. And I think there was a line Lois Maxwell may have said to Covey about, oh, uh, I could be a female M. And he said, well, we've traditionally, you know, the head of MI5 has always been a man. And Lois Maxwell came back with the famous line, well, traditionally the Prime Minister of Britain has always been a man. So... <laughs> But yeah, I, I I can understand them moving on. And have you and have you actually seen the um, Thames TV's sort of live coverage of the Licence to Kill premiere in June '89? It is on YouTube, and it's a, interesting. And Lois Maxwell presents, and then she interviews Caroline Bliss, who's taken over the role. I'm just suggesting there's a little bit of acidic. It all turns into sort of like all about Eve or all about Money Penny, where you can just see the slightly nudged aside veteran is slightly sucking it in to be polite to the one that's taken over from her or i'm just reading too much into it. i'll watch that one tonight yeah there's a line where 
Caroline Bliss says, oh, I hope I do as many as you did. And she went, yes, I hope you do too. And it was like, oh, oh ouch. <laughs> Something else that we talked about was, um, obviously this is Roger's last film as well, last Bond film. Mm. And like the, the obviously there was so much back and forth over Octopussy and whether he would and whether he wouldn't. But with this one, the line was that it was a very quick decision for him. And we sort of wondered whether that might have been as a result of the, you know, the whole Octopussy versus Never Say Never Again battle and, and sort of how he'd sort of aver- emerged victorious from that. Um, and that sort of gave him the confidence just to, just to say, I'll do one more. Is that a fair reading, would you think? Yes. I mean, Roger Moore did probably one more about three or four times. And that kind of where Daniel Craig is down. Well, I don't think he'll end up doing two or three more. Um, Yes, Octopussy won at that, you know, won at the box office duel of of Bonds. Um, I I think it's worth mentioning here that Roger Moore represented seriously good box office, not just for Bond. Obviously, Bond is where it mattered for the Bond franchise. But Roger Moore was seriously famous and popular throughout the world, particularly America. And whilst the uh, you know, License to Kill maybe didn't hit a busy movie summer in 89 and it didn't do so well. The 80s Bond films held up and everyone always says, oh, you know, 80s Bond and Beauty Kill is terrible. Well, a lot of the Bond films, and I would suggest even now, live on a quite hand-to-mouth existence. They're, they're always checking the figures of the last film in order to move forward. It's Nothing's guaranteed. Nothing's a dead search, which I partly think is what's going to you know why no time to die has to be handled very carefully in this covid era in terms of its release and that's another discussion i'm sure um but bond you know a bond film always necessitates the next one and i think that did happen very much with octopus and also they didn't it's you know bond in the mid 80s yeah we probably by the mid 80s i was only nine but there's probably a lot of press. In fact, I know there was like Daily Express cartoons knocking how old Roger Moore was. But and that had been going on for years. And suddenly, though, Cubby and Eon and John Glenn and United Artists MGM, they've got this dilemma of do we recast? Do we do we bring a new bond in for you know you to kill, or do we just take that gamble, bring the budget down a bit? I think the, the 80s bonds did all shrink their budgets film after film just to keep you know keep the studio bigwigs happy. Um, and I think maybe it made more box office sense to go with Roger Moore than to recast. And, the, you know, there were actors that were touted about. There was Finlay Light, who was an Australian actor, who got mentioned. Actually, that was more 86, 87. Uh, and then we, we lead into the Dalton stuff. Um, but I, as I say, Roger Moore, people liked him. Cinemas liked him. You know, cinema managers liked what he represented uh, to their takings. So that, it just makes sound sense. And also... He, he worked well with Cubby and Eon. It's good sometimes just to know what you've got, you know, moving forward. Let's just, we'll keep who we've got. We'll keep the team because unknowns are very dangerous things in, in movie land. Yeah, I guess um, they see that every time when they're looking to recast. It's that it's that whole mystery of the new one, isn't it? And uh, I guess they would rather just stick with the one that they know. Um, mm. We. All, sorry, what I would on. say is, what I would say is that I mean, I do this, I'm sure you guys have, where you look at it, well, imagine license, imagine A View to a Kill with Timothy Dalton. I don't think A View to a Kill, if it kept every beat and tone and location and music cue with Timothy Dalton, I don't think it would have worked. It would have been a, it would have been a very different film. 
Listen, it barely works with Roger. <laughs> careful. Yes, careful. Careful. <laughs> no, it would be sending a uh, what is it? A butterfly on a um, on a on a fishing wire over. Don't don't make me go and fix you a Mayday drink over the uh, <laughs> East Bay of San Francisco. Do you have a favourite scene, Mark, in uh, In a View to a Kill, or a favourite setting? Um, well, I love San Francisco. I mean, I'm a big SF guy. It's kind of become our second home, and we, we would like to live there one day. We'll, we'll watch this space, but we'll see. Um, I, I love all the San Francisco stuff, because I love America in Bond movies. I don't know why. I really miss America in Bond films. I'd, I'd love, love to see Daniel Craig sort of mucking about in New York or Washington. Um, so I love all the San Francisco stuff. And also, when we stay in San Francisco, we stay with a friend who was there. In fact, the apartment is the same apartment. He was there when they shot all the City Hall scenes. And you can he's literally sort of, I don't know, 50 metres from City Hall, and you can see it all. But I, I favourite scene, favourite moment? Oddly, I've always liked the moment at the chateau on, on the sort of moat bridge, None of it makes sense. You've got all these sort of 80s women with massive hair, and then you've got all these sort of Louis the Fourteenth waiters. Um, but I kind of love that scene, and I, I actually pl- had a, a violinist play Bond meets Stacey at our wedding as we signed the document. <laughs> wow. Which was a lot less tacky than it sounds, I will say. It, was, it, it worked very well. Um, uh, I always said I wanted that played at our, our wedding, so my, my cousin, who's a professional violinist, did it at Pinewood but that's another discussion but yeah we got married at Pinewood so wow. it kind of worked I don't know if we talked about it when we did the podcast did you did you two have favourite scenes from this film uh, it's not really scenes that I've got it's the set pieces like the um, the parachute jump uh, and yeah. the, the half a car you know yeah. they're very good stunt stunt scenes I, I think for me the best bit is the Golden Gate Bridge stuff just because it's the most memorable I don't remember much about it apart from some uh, some punching on top of Golden Gate Bridge, but I remember the scene well compared to some of the other ones. I don't remember a lot of the other kind of horse scenes and stuff throughout the film. I don't know why it sticks with me, but the, I love the scene where they're in City Hall and Bond gets rumbled by Zorin and mm-hmm. Mayday. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about now, I can't walking. even remember that. Is that when he gets an office job and he's just pattering yeah. around? Yeah, he's just working in an office for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> there's a story to all of that i don't, I don't know if you uh, covered it or so you've probably heard of harvey milk the guy that uh sean penn won the oscar for 10 years mm-hmm. back um to film milk and harvey milk got shot in 1978 by a colleague of his and two guys got shot actually and it really cast a dark shadow over city hall and its workers and then so did aids and hiv and that that really hit New, uh, San Francisco. And Diane Feinstein, who was then one of the uh, civic bigwigs of San Francisco, and she's now a Democrat sort of elder. I think she's almost about to retire, but, um, but she's a big, famous uh, Democrat. She was a massive Roger Moore fan, and she went to Cubby and said, look, come and film in San Francisco. We've had a bit of a bad few years. And I'm not saying this was the conversation she had, but she almost probably had the conversation. Right, so we had these two assassin, you know, two murders in City Hall, uh, internal jobs, it was horrible, uh, blood and gunshot everywhere. Can you please come to San Francisco and film a scene set in City Hall where one of our workers is shot dead and left a flaming building? I always wonder why they, they sort of invited Bond 
and uh, Roger Moore in to then recreate what's happened that they were trying yeah, to forget. Yeah. That's a side issue. But yes, no, I love that. I do like that scene where uh, Zorin walks in, Christopher Walken sort of does that thing where he grabs the two guns and swaps the guns so that Bond's gun is left as evidence for the sort of the dopey uh, sheriff of the town. And I do think, Christopher, like you say, Christopher Walken is... He's, the dialogue could be stronger, but he does so much with that character. Mm. He's really one sick puppy. And it, it, that, it's, it's not aged what he does in that film. It's slightly wi- wired and wild. Um, yeah. And I love him for that. I, I love him for that. Is there is there anything about Fuser Killed that you would say, I'm not too keen on that. I wish they hadn't have done that. It's reaction to this day, yes. No, um, <laughs> uh, I, Lord bless her, she's sort of, she uh, left this uh, world to go and uh, live with the Charlie's Angels in the sky. But Tanya Roberts, I always liked her in the role, but, but I never, as a kid, but I never perhaps sort of stood back and looked at it. And she is, she's so much more feisty in other things she was doing at the time, and she's not given enough. And yes, she ends up sort of a bit Fay Ray. She's sort of tied. Yeah. She goes through all these silent movie tropes of sort of, you know, hanging off a ladder, being tied to things, flames you know, uh, she's kind of left like a silent era heroine in distress all the time so maybe i would have perhaps re either repointed her character or, or rethought the casting uh, i think there was a um there was an original idea of having priscilla presley mm-hmm. uh in the role who's a little older but i think some she was contracted for the dallas tv show at the time and couldn't do it and then yeah there were other actresses looked at so yeah maybe just slightly retweak Tanya Roberts. Um, that's perhaps, that's genuinely only, the only thing I would go back and mm. alter if I had to. But I don't. I don't have to though. So. Yeah. No. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely agree with that. Have you made the um, the pilgrimage to Amberley, Mark? Tw- yes, twice. Or oh, no, more than that. Mm. Once when I was eleven, it was my. You know, when you're like a kid, they say, "What do you want to do on your birthday? Who can you take one friend? Where do you want to go?" <laughs> And I took my friend Patrick and we went to Amberley Chalk Pits and I got a new camera, like a stills camera, but it had like only 12 images in it. I remember sort of taking 12 pictures of Zorin mining stock, which was still there for years and decades later, and they still have it now. And then I went back four or five summers ago. It was a bit of a Bond group thing and they knew we were coming and they opened up the tunnel um, and they got out some of the rolling stock, and we literally were kids with a, a sort of Zorin train set. So yes, I've been to Amberley, and I've also been to uh, Dunsmuir House, which is Tanya Roberts' house in the film. Uh, yeah. It's also the house from Phantasm, and so I married an axe murderer. And it, it's near, it's in Oakland, which is sort of just outside of San Francisco. Uh, and we may have been nearby in a rental car with a morning to kill. So I sort of said, let's just see if we can go there. And we went there, it was closed, but you were free to walk around the grounds. And it was amazing because we weren't the only people there. Had we gone on the day, it's because it's like a heritage house where you can mm. go and have weddings and events and things. Had we gone when it was open, it would have all just been tourists and annoying people. And it hasn't changed. It su- seriously hasn't changed. I, and I looked through the windows and I... And it looked as empty inside as well. I, I think they recreated its emptiness. <laughs> I think they filmed the, the stairwell was sort of a mix of actually there and also a set. So I've been there. But, and this is where I put my hand in the air, I've actually never been to Paris officially. So the idea that I've never been to Paris and I'm a big View to Kill fan makes no sense. Yes, I've been to San Francisco and all the various 
And Amberley Be- twice. <laughs> and Amberley twice, yeah, well, probably three times. Yeah, yeah, so, but I haven't been to like Paris much ever. I sort of go through Paris and end up forgetting to be there when I'm there, if that makes sense. It's the, funny, um, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it's funny you mentioned that because I've been to Paris a few times, but I've never, any time I've been, thought about going to look at the locations that are... Uh, that they, they have in the film, but I, which I'm a bit annoyed about myself for now because I normally do make well, a wanna, point of going to view all the Bond locations. Well, I want to drive a blue Renault taxi down those steps uh, <laughs> doing a very sort of a low, a low French accent, drinking red wine because that's what all French taxi drivers do. Um, yeah, I mean, bless R- Remy Julien, the French stunt genius that created all the stunts, particularly the 80s Bond films. He passed away... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he he did all the stunts, all the Paris stunts uh, for A View to a Kill. And I, I had a had a great day driving with Ben Collins, one of the Bond stunt drivers, and he says he kind of misses the days of that inventiveness of car chases in Bond, that silliness, like you know, mm. cars being chopped in half and going across buses. But yeah, we're in the we're in the Daniel Craig era, so uh, I don't think we can have comedy cars just yet. I'd love them to throw just one scene in in No Time to Die, just to just to see what the response is like. <laughs> Something ridiculous. Cork's, yeah, corkscrew like a, jump. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, well you'll just, just watch this space, as they say. But, um, yeah. Uh, well, he's got the bike jump, where mm-hmm. some stuntman has. Uh, he's got that one. Slightly CGI, wire assisted. Has it got one of those whistle noises? As it's... It will now. I've got to imagine <laughs> if they did. Imagine if they just... Yeah, they, they pull out all the stops and the whistle stops, yes. <laughs> We've got, um, we're talking about Remy Julien, Mark, we've got a, a bit of a worrying um, trend that's been happening with the release of the podcast oh. in that we released the first episode at, and it includes Michael Apted and Michael Apted died. Then, Gosh. Then we released the second episode, which has Aston Martin in it and they closed the Bond in Motion exhibition. Then we released episode three and Tanya Roberts died um, and that was The View to a Kill. So we're just sort of tentatively releasing them each time and just hoping that it's not connected <laughs> oh, well, well well thank you for inviting me onto your twilight zone <laughs> the, the movie podcast of of luck and devilment yeah that's great well um bye everyone <laughs> listen we've made it to the end of this week and we haven't killed don black so i think that's no no but I'm, like, I'm keeping an eye on uh, john taylor and simon Le bon, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> just get your jabs before you go and sing to a killer some gig um yeah, well, I'm afraid, though, we're at this time in sort of life where these people, like uh, Sean Connery died, and mm. it's and everyone says, oh, God's got it in for Bond. I don't think so. I think it's Bond's, uh, God's just got it in for people that reach a certain age, um, sadly. Well, as uh, we're yes, discovering rem- every week, the, the Bond franchise hit, reaches so many people, even just tangentially, mm. that yes, it, yeah. just by um, the law of average, yeah. someone will die. Well, you're at that point now where... Bond all of the legends that are associated with Bond are quite old now, aren't they? So every time we do any research for it, the first thing I check is, are they still alive? Just so I can use that to fuel the rest of it before I start saying anything I shouldn't. Well, there was a point where I kept doing these these Bond sort of, you know, Instagram posts. It was RIP and RIP. I feel like the Bond sort of... Yeah. The seventh veil here. I'm sort of <laughs> constantly like Shane Rimmer and yeah. well, it, the greats. It's probably a, a sign of the, the, the people don't often associate Bond with being an old series. If we, if you were to do a Hitchcock mm. series, everyone's mm. going to be dead from that, and it's not going to be surprising. But yeah. it's probably because Bond is still in the in front of people's mind all the time. They don't really think it's that old. But um, yeah, well, it is. Fair play on Tanya Roberts and a View to Kill for having that rather 
strange departure from this world that Tanya Roberts sadly mm. uh, had mm. this sort of in not in sort of uh, moment that was very bizarre but um yeah sad, yeah sadly our uh, I was thinking I when Harrison Ford goes, that'll be hard. Roger Moore going was hard because I'd met him and I'd privately been told this was on the cards, which made it actually sadder. But I, I, I sort of think Harrison Ford going, that's going to that's gonna be a blow. Not that he's going anywhere yet, folks. Yeah, you haven't got any inside knowledge there, Mark. Please don't. Um, well, as, as long as he stops going on to Pinewood sets and Millennium Falcons with rather large metal doors that can kill you if they come down fast but i think it's i think it'll be flying the airplanes that gets in before anything else to be honest um, yes yeah <laughs> but, yeah because he's a yeah he keeps doesn't he keep rescuing people or crashing and he's crashed a few waking times up in car crashes and like harrison ford's giving them the kiss of life like, yeah. <laughs> we won't keep you much longer mark but um just wanted to just briefly touch on the the top five thing that you've done on yahoo recently and mm. um how, what were there, any big surprises from that that from the work that you did on that um no i was i it was endearing to see so we went to uh i, I call them bond alumni or you know bond experts is such a moot point because there's always some wag including today saying oh, who said they were experts well they're not they're they're bond actors they're bond designers bond creatives authors etc etc and i but i was surprised how much they were not they weren't going too classical uh, so there was, you know, people like Ben Collins, who's the stunt driver on No Time to Die. He loves A View to a Kill. That's his favourite Bond film. Um, I, I was most amazed to hear that. Um, yes, there's always that trinity of From Russia of Love, On a Majesty's Secret Service and Goldfinger. They're always the, the family favourites that always get invited to every Bond list wedding. Um, but then we put it out to the public and I did a very, it was quite a big straw poll. And we, I was sort of, I got confused by some of the figures, but fortunately Twitter gives you, I did loads of polls and you can see all the statistics and my uh, husband's a teacher, so he was able to do all the maths and the, the calculations. And then suddenly Goldeneye was number one. I was, I was like, whoa, hang on, how? I, I, was, I was like, oh God, this has gone really wrong. But then I thought, no, 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 that's, that's not at all. Because you look at the age of people online who see and vote in these things. They're the gen- they're the Goldeneye generation, and Goldeneye represented a, you know, I think the reason we have Bond films now is because Goldeneye hit the ground running. So I, and then we also had those watch-alongs last year with Pierce Brosnan and Famke Janssen and everyone. So Goldeneye was kind of out there again. I was surprised to see maybe some of the bottom ones, like Spectre was the least loved film. Hmm. But it's important to remember that everyone more or less voted for one film. So that meant 23 were left, you know, sat on the bench. But Spectre was perhaps the most left alone on the bench, which I I Mm. thought odd. Um, But I thought overall it was a really fair mix and and it was a fair mix of eras and actors. So I I thought that was quite encouraging because, you know, Bond to me needs to move forward. I I do feel there's an issue where it needs to get slightly younger fans because it hasn't got that Marvel fever that, you know, I mean, I saw View to, View to Kill when I was nine. The idea of my nine-year-old godson seeing a Daniel Craig Bond film is a bit odd because they're, possi- they're, you know, they're very different beasts now. Um, and they're so few yeah, and far I, between, I guess. Yes, yeah, that's that as well. Yes, that as well. Um, but I know I, I thought it was really interesting, and I loved there was little quirks like Robert Darby, um, who's Senor Frances from License to Kill. He put License to Kill as number three, which I, I thought was initially hilarious. And then I read how he defended Goldfinger, which was his number one. And he had such great 
comments on it. And the saddest thing really was I had to really abridge a lot of people's comments because it was just it was going to become like a a book otherwise. What? And I've I've got all the um, in fact on the the photos, the top five photos. His he's got all his proper description. He, he writes very well as. And so does um, Ben Collins. Ben Collins is a really good writer, um, even though he's a stunt driver as well. He's a very clever writer. Um, and then I, I love seeing the favouritism that Yanni Tamim, who's a costume designer on Skyfall, said that Skyfall's the best bomb ever made. Like, okay, of course it is. And likewise, <laughs> uh, Trina Parks from Diamonds Are Forever said that. Um, and there was a few people, I, I, I won't name names, Tom knows who one of them is, but one Bond director got scared and wouldn't do it because he didn't want to be accused of favoritism. I was like, I want you to be accused of favoritism. <laughs> I, I said, you are such a coward, but honestly, not a problem. Um, and yeah, a few people were busy. Um, but no, it's been a good thing. And then this photo thing sort of taken off, which has become yeah, a, yeah. a sort of ice bucket challenge for Bond people. Yeah, we haven't and posted ours yet, but... Um, oh no, you must I'm still it. deciding on mine. Oh, it's really important. <laughs> The fourth and fifth are the hardest. Well, the, you, yeah. yeah, you're like, I don't know what to put. It's like, mm. it's a bit like a wedding list. Or like, which cousin do we have in at number five? Yeah, uh, we, yeah and you're like, I don't know. She, she'll kick off. I do like the music on that one. So, um, Well, we were, just, we were discussing yesterday. And yeah, as you say, four and five are the most difficult. But I, 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 there's some films I like that, from the new series that I can't compare Casino Royale to, I don't know, Goldfinger or something. It's very difficult to... to to throw both of those in but i ended up putting goldeneye in which i didn't think was in my top five but after doing the process of elimination it ended up being in there bond is not just about classics and quality i, I sometimes bonded to me as you know a glass of bollinger champagne but sometimes it's a slightly warm beer on a friday you know yeah. um it, and that's what's great about it very few film series have that that sort of different dynamic fandom have, have, have uh, and you that's ever, because of the different eras have you ever done a list of ones that are technically the best films as, as opposed to your favourite well I would say best favourite guilty pleasure because you know when I've done Catching Bullets my bomb book I, I, I couldn't really pick a favourite and I was also highly aware of going trying to sell a book where the author says his favourite bomb film is A View to Kill that's not even now that would be a little bit of a bold marketing move so i said right i can have favorite we can also have bests and that kind of gets around that a bit but yeah i mean yes you can look at the the quality of i watched the only twice the other day there's a sort of ken adam centenary tribute i was just bowled over by the yeah. the set design i'd forgotten the set well not forgotten it but i hadn't seen it for a while yeah even just a yeah. corridor is beautiful and the sense of ceiling space and yeah. metal well, we, we, and... we did um we've just done a, a brosnan episode or just recorded it and um one of the mm. things that cropped up was like tomorrow never dies we found that very difficult to watch because it just didn't seem like a a, a bond film that we enjoy or it didn't seem like a classic bond film but for somebody, that's probably a like a, the perfect film. They might th- that might tick all the boxes for a really well-made action film. It's my favourite Pierce Brosnan film. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it often is in my top five, but I I don't know why I didn't actually because that's the other thing as well. I'm almost going to put a joke out. Right now we've done our top five last week. Let's do another one this week because that's all that's going to happen because everyone re- retunes it. But yeah. yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies is uh, I like Tomorrow Never Dies. It's got a momentum and a, again it's very much of its time yeah you know that that sort mm-hmm. of media time that brit pop that's uh, hong kong and britain um i i love it I, th- I think it's got an energy to it as well a lot of bond films don't have so you, so you'd have that as your top brosnan yeah, yeah oh god yes mm, very interesting yeah I, i'm not a fan of 
my least favorite Bond film is The World Is Not Enough. I I I'll always watch Die Another Day over World Is Not Enough. I I just find World Is Not Enough. It, it's fine. It's still a Bond film, and it's got you know great elements, but it's I find Sophie Marceau really hammy, and she should have been amazing. <laughs> and I I find it pulls its punches. It doesn't have. It won't just have her as the villain. We have to have a reason why a woman is a villain. I find that yeah. quite tough. And I was I was once talking. I was apologising to some people involved in making the film. I said, sorry, I've laid into your film in the book and other places. And they said, no, 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 you're quite right. We deserved it. Um, which I thought, oh, okay. Um, I just, I, I like the energy of Tomorrow Never Dies. I like Michelle Yeo. I think she's yeah. a really yeah. cool addition to Bond. She's she's not bimboy younger. She's not a trophy Bond girl. She's you know literally in the midst with him. I would probably recast Jonathan Price. But he was he was a recast choice over other people that couldn't do it at the last minute. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, and I love the whole sh- uh, Vietnam setting and the whole um, let's say Far East, but we don't say that anymore. The whole Asian backdrop to it. Um, no, I, I loved it. Very I interesting. It we'll, get, we'll have to get you on next week for some more debates. I will. Yeah, over films that we like. <laughs> get me on to defend all the Bond films you don't like. I'll be, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be the uh, probably got directly opposite lists. Yes, no, we yeah. are all, all up for that. And actually, I have seen on some of these photos that have been doing the, um, the top five Bond photos and doing the, the rounds. Tomorrow Never Dies and Goldeneye comes up a lot. Mm. Um, I haven't seen much. I did see A World Is Not Enough today. No one's put Die Another Day yet. Well, listen, that'd Mark, be, we want that fine, would not it? Well, I, that... I want, I want, I'm not going to stop with this now until Billie Eilish or Kerry Fukunaga do theirs and they put No Time to Die as number one because the, the sods have seen it. Because um, I, I joked to... Barbara Broccoli, I said, um, don't look at this list because uh, No Time to Die is number seven. <laughs> Just as a little quip. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's bring it back. Just one last thing we wanted to ask you, Mark, about um, View to a Kill and mm-hmm. the, Ma- the Maud Adams myth, which um, Ooh, is something we yes. talked about uh, <laughs> offline. Mm. Um, In great detail. So set the record straight. What's the, what's the story here? So Maud Adams should be in every Bond film admittedly because I, I love Maud Adams and she's my favourite Bond actress Bond woman and I've, I'm fortunate to say we, I, we know her a bit and she's shown us around LA a couple of times and I was in her 4x4 we were driving down Sunset Boulevard and I was we, we'd had lunch and I was like I, the question came up you know and I was like can I ask you ha, ha, you know I was a bit tentative because often when you meet people who are famous for being in a film you love it's really advisable to not talk about that film too much, but she was fine with it. And I said, were you in A View to a Kill? And she, and she admits, and, and there's, I think, Good Morning America TV footage at the time. She does turn up at Fisherman's Wharf set to visit Roger Moore. She was in the area. I think she's got a house in San Francisco as well. And she's, But she's not in any scene. It was a slight PR myth. I think John Glenn may have pushed it. Maybe she was in it and, uh, and John Glenn trimmed her out a bit but she's not in the film she's not stepping off the tram car she's not in the, the beige jacket uh behind um and she said it's it's a lovely urban myth incredible but all that she, time she, we spent discussing it could have just spoken yeah. to you <laughs> well even on bond dvd documentaries don't always believe every story and also people don't mm. always remember everything you know i i i don't remember a day's work 20 years ago every time and even if it's a bond film some of these people don't remember every detail 
I actually think when we on the show weekly on the podcast, you say there's no truth to this because I can't find any evidence well, of it. But I, she does I, I say saw it on some the article. I found a lot of articles about this and differing reports of it. And I don't even know where they got some of the information from. But one of them was it was saying it was pointing towards one of the ladies in the picture, and it was clearly not her. Like you, there was yes. no way it could be her, and they were saying this is her, that one there on the right. But I don't know how you get to that point. Are these people not are just ignoring the picture and just assuming? Yeah, that's fine. It's got to be her. Um, yeah, good. Well, let's put that one to bed then. Don't have to worry about that one anymore. No, it's def- definitely not her. Definitely not her. So, Mark, if people want to find you, where do they find you online? Uh, oh, um, I'm, my website's markoconnell.co.uk. Uh, hashtag catching bullets or hashtag watching skies tends to find me. They're, they're the two sort of books and brands that I uh, straddle. Um, and at the moment, putting top five bonds, that tends to... Uh, bring my name up at the moment but yeah i'm out there i'm out there well thank you so much for being our very first guest it's been an absolute honor um to have you here Who, who's doing my obituary next week though who's, isn't that how it works <laughs> well we, we don't know what the rule is with guests yet we know that hosts God, are okay we're just got to find out well you'll be the first one to test it yeah i'm, I'm not going out of the house it's not like some <laughs> free vest uh yes <laughs> anyway yes no it's pl- pleasure guys it's always good to talk yeah, thank you so much for listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. If you want to find us on social media, we're at James Bond A to Z. And if people want to email us, podcast at James Bond A to Z. No, it's not that, is it? It is. Is it the full one? <laughs> podcast at James Bond A to Z dot co dot UK. That very slick outing there. I'll let it James there. Bond will return next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.